that. It is good. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I love getting to stand in this space and to open these scriptures with you. Uh, many of you are aware I've been gone the last month. Thank you for your prayers and support. I love this community and feel very loved by it. Um, my wife had a baby on December 5th, and uh, many of you know he has trisomy 21, also known as Down syndrome, and we are still in the NICU, still waiting for his body as it develops. We're living on his timetable as his lungs are developing. He's learning to breathe on his own and eat on his own, and so we would welcome your ongoing prayers in this season, um, but I, I got to tell you, this is the most thoughtful and prayerful and generous and kind community. I love being a part of this family. So thank you for your love and support to us. And, and not just to us, my heart's also overflowing with gratitude for this community and what God did in and through you in the month of December. We year over year have said we're gonna give every dollar away in December because we want to be arranged around the mission of God. We wanna strain towards the mission of God. And uh, we set a pretty aggressive goal this year to raise $450,000 to give to three critical partners in the city that are actually going to be here eating lunch with us today, the, the leaders of those organizations at the Source and the Riverside Project and the Landing. And just by, by kind of to situate us in our, our normal giving, we give about $250,000 a month. That's our budget at Seven Mile Road. We set a goal of 450000 in December, and you gave, let me make sure I get it right, $598,861 in the month of December, which is, yeah, is going to make a really meaningful impact in those organizations. If you want to come back for lunch today and hear about what God's doing and what's, what's going to be going on in ways that we can connect there and serve there, I'm stunned by you and by what God is doing, so thank you. Let me pray for us, and we're going to dig into this prophetic passage together. Father, we love you. You are worthy of our attention and our affection. Your word is good. It is different from everyone else's word. True, powerful, transformative. Dig us ears to hear. Oh, and would you make it the case that to a person, every man and woman and child in this room, that we would return to you with whole hearts and experience your restoration. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the midst of a series. This is week two in a series that's going to take us through the month of January that is intended to be preparing our hearts for some extended fasting and prayer. We do this with some regularity as a community, fasting and prayer. What's different about it this year is that we're not the only ones doing it. This rhythm has been picked up by other churches that we're partnering with, and there will be a, a series of churches spread out all across the city that are calling their people to pray in the month of February. And many of those churches are also preaching through these passages, and as a result, the city, in a sense, is having their hearts tilled and prepared to say, what does it look like to hunger for God? Last week, we heard a beautiful word from Tyler about one of the, the purposes of communal fasting. It's to repent. You know, it's this interesting thing that Bible reading, Jesus-loving people, when they, they hear that, hey, we're all going to fast together for a season, I'll, I'll always get this question. But didn't Jesus say that fasting is supposed to be private, secret, that we're not supposed to let others know that we are fasting? 
Which is an excellent question. He does say that. And there are many times throughout the scriptures where a community for a particular purpose or for a particular season joins together in a communal fast. And both are important disciplines in the Christian's life. And so what we're doing in this series is we're examining different moments throughout the Bible where a community says, now is a time for all of us to fast. And we're saying, what was happening there? What was the purpose in that moment? And then maybe we can learn from those and apply them to us as a community. Last week, Tyler was helping us to see that in Jonah 3, one of the reasons a community would together set aside food for a season, set aside satisfying themselves for a season, and pray is to to actually feel brokenness over their sin and to say, God, we have been acting wickedly in these ways and we want to lay it down. This week in Joel chapter two, we're gonna see that communal fasting and prayer isn't just for repentance, but it's for returning to the heart of God itself. Now, one of the dangers in a topical series like this where we're dropping into passages is that we could do violence to the context. I don't have time to fully teach the whole of the book of of Joel, this minor prophet, but let me just set it up before we plunge into chapter two. We're not sure when Joel was written. It is a minor prophet written to the southern kingdom of Israel. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah was the more pious of the two kingdoms. And Joel is writing to them and he's he's doing something that's unexpected. He's warning them about the day of the Lord. Now, the reason that's unexpected is the day of the Lord, that's a phrase that is used by prophets throughout the Old Testament. But it has consistently been that when the day of the Lord is spoken about, it means two things salvation for God's people, judgment for God's enemies. So when it gets talked about, it means good things for God's own. It means judgment for those that have been standing against God. So we could go to places like Isaiah 13 and see a warning about the day of the Lord for Babylon. Or Jeremiah 46, God is warning Egypt because they're an enemy of God and the day of the Lord is going to be dangerous and devastating for them. Or in Amos 5, the day of the Lord, the day when God reveals himself and shows up in glory. In Amos 5, it's a threat to the northern kingdom, the apostate kingdom. Or in Obadiah to the Edomites. The point is this, that over and over and over, the people of God have heard about the day of the Lord and they've said, oh, that is a threat to the enemies of God. What you're gonna see in Joel chapter two What's happening in the book of Joel as the context to our chapter is this. He's saying the day of the Lord isn't just a walk in the park for God's people. He's saying actually when God shows up, the people who've been living in the pious part of the land, they too are gonna be shaken awake. He's saying, listen, people who consider yourself pious and to love God, he's going, what would it mean for a cataclysmic, glorious revelation of the presence of God if God showed up in your living room today? What would be exposed? What would you all of a sudden go, oh gosh, I can't believe that's been part of my life. I can't believe I've allowed myself to live with this half-hearted, weak devotion to to this, the living God. You see, the book of Joel is the biggest twist because what he's saying is the day of the Lord should shock and awaken his own as well. And so what we are going to study is our response to this recognition. God is going to show up. And what should our response be? What should we do? He's going to call us to return to the Lord with a whole heart and to be restored. To return and be restored. 
So with the balance of our time, what I want us to do is study what communal fasting has to do with returning to the Lord and experiencing his restoration. You with me? You okay? What does it mean to return to the Lord? He's going to call us in Joel chapter 2 in light of the fact that God is going to reveal himself and he's going to say it is time to to return. And and quite frankly, what it means to return to the Lord is to leave your half-hearted life behind. Like that that thing that gives a tip of the hat to God that shows up and, in a Sunday gathering or in a house church and gives your pittance to God but then goes and gets, gets on with the things of life because this is really what life is about and this kind of gets sprinkled over the edges. And he's gonna show up and go, listen, listen, it's time to take inventory and to leave your half-hearted life behind. He, he says it like this in, in verse 12. You heard it. He says this, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. He's saying the reason you would fast, the reason you would engage in this activity is because I want all of your heart. I want you to come back to me. And it, I just want you to think for a moment that question to make it personal. If If the glory of God, if today he were just to peel the roof off of your house or your apartment and the glory cloud of God were to descend and you were going, he's real and he's powerful and he's here with me, what immediately would you all of a sudden be going, oh no, why have I spent my time on that thing? Why have I clung to this? Why have I responded that way? What would the the coming of the presence of God reveal in your story to have been half-hearted? Weak affections. You see, it, it reminds me of the, the Old Testament character Saul. He was known to have had a, a divided heart. Saul is this guy that was anointed with the Holy Spirit. At one point, he was among the prophets, taken up in ecstatic experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of God. Yet, because he was popular and because he cared so much about what people thought about him, he ended up visiting the medium of Endor, seeking out the voice of other gods. He ended up running so far from God that he was stripped of all and he was broken apart by the journey. I think about a character like Saul and I realize that being half-hearted, just playing the religious games, living in the pious part of the land and thinking, surely I'm okay with God, just giving my tip of the hat at the temple. That's all that's required. Communal fasting is one of the answers that that God starts to say, listen, I want you to return to me with everything. And we've got to figure out how are we going to get to those places in your heart? Return to me with a whole heart. And, And he also answers the question, when should this happen? It's not just what, the what is return to me with your whole heart. He he wants you to leave your half-hearted life behind. And, And when does he want you to do it? Now. He says, now. Did you hear it in verse 12? Yet even Now, the day of salvation, the day of repentance and God's economy, every time he talks about it in the scriptures, it's always right now. Reminds me of that that great book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's this, it's kind of a a parable, a dreamlike story of a group of people that get to take a bus from hell to heaven and take a tour. And there's these, these ghosts that are kind of walking around in heaven and they're, they're getting to explore what it might be like. And, and there's one particular ghost-like character that has a little lizard on his shoulder and the lizard is speaking lust and temptation into his ear. 
and he's walking around and he's kind of embarrassed by it now that he's in heaven as this thing is whispering in his ears. Shh, 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 shh. And God shows up and he says, do you want me to kill that for you? Do you want me to kill it for you? He's like, well, do you mean like right now? Like maybe I, I've kind of got it under control. Maybe another time. I think it's just fine. It's fine right there. It's not bothering you. And he goes, no, do you want me to kill it now? And he goes, now? Does it, does it need to be now? And he said, in the eternal, it's always now. In the things of God, it is always now. What are you waiting for? Like this half-hearted journey where you carry the thing around on your shoulder that whispers to you and owns you and robs you of freedom and fullness that leaves you kind of like in a ghost-like experience of a rich and ruly and beautiful world. And he's going, do you want to kill it now? You see, when we begin to consider the day of the Lord, the glory of God coming, the, the invitation is return with your whole heart and don't waste time. Now is the moment of salvation or of repentance. And then he gets to this, how? What is it? It's, your, it's, it's leaving your half-hearted life behind. When is it? It's now. But then he answers this question, well, how do I do it? And you might be feeling that way. Here we are at the start of a new year talking about hungering for God, saying what would it look like to be wholeheartedly devoted to God? There's part of us that thinks that sounds nice. I'm not sure how. And the text anticipates that. God anticipates that and he speaks to it. He's giving them a very practical approach. And in part, this is what we're preparing our hearts for as a community, as a very practical approach. He's actually gonna call them to set aside some time and to fast and to mourn and to weep. He's gonna call them to tear their hearts, not just their garments. He's saying, break your hearts open so that you can receive my love and do it, all of you. If all of you were in on it and all of you were leaning in, what might I do? Listen to the way he says it in verses 12 and 13a and then in verses 15 through 17. He says this. So even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders and the children and the, even the nursing infants. The bridegroom leaving his room and the bride his chamber. He's going, this is even so important that it interrupts the honeymoon. No matter where you are and what you're doing, everybody is in on this. He says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? My... Uh, my front lawn has long since been trampled by three boys and a whole neighborhood. I love that our house is a, is a house where people congregate and I love that my boys are active and energetic and would prefer to be outside doing something. Uh, I love that. I don't love that I can't grow grass. <laughs> what has happened to my front lawn is that it has been pounded into hard stone you know the the dirt you play enough blitz ball games and tackle football games and you have enough gatherings and enough people standing around and packing it down it gets packed down so hard by constant foot traffic that I have this mud pit that when it rains like it did this morning it just turns to mud that's what I've got in my front lawn and I think quite frankly 
that's the way most of our hearts are. I think they have been trampled by constant foot traffic, worked over until they're hard. And they just can't even receive the rains from the heavens. They just pool up and turn to mud. Because the truth is, we are so bound up in the things of, of life, small things, things that we carry around on our shoulder that whisper to us, that we think become more and more important. We are so bound up in small things that are gonna turn to dust. And, and the foot traffic and the noise and the distraction leaves us oftentimes with hearts that become hard that when we think about entertaining and interacting with the presence of God, we go, well, how would I go about that? Like one, where does that fit? And even if I made the time, there's so much noise and so much distraction and I'm so exhausted that I'll sit there and feel like not much happens at all. It doesn't penetrate beyond the surface because the foot traffic has just left it so hard. To which God says, fast. Get together, all of you, and fast. That's his answer. He's saying, rip your heart, not your garments. Tear it open so that it can receive me. I've had a few friends that I think are concerned for me that have looked at our fasting sign up that's been attached to some emails. You'll start seeing that, an opportunity to sign up for some days to fast in February. And a few friends that got on that reached out to me and they're like, so I see your name on every day. Are you getting a little ahead of yourself? Are you okay? I said, you know, I, I just, I'm gonna let you in on what I'm doing in February. I'm not going without all food all month. I'm gonna do one meal a day to try to stay hungry for a month because what I know is this, that my heart is prone to being worked, to being hard and impenetrable. And what I've found is that when I've done this in the past, it's silly things, silly things that transform our heart. I will sit at all of these meetings and all of these moments and literally in my head and my heart, what I'm saying is, God, I love you more than that cup of coffee. I love you more than co- I, I love you more than my morning cup. I love you more than bacon. I love you more than pancakes. I love you more than that sandwich. Like I literally sit at meetings, and that's what I'm rehearsing. And then I start to realize my heart is so satisfied with li- really little things. I get so easily, and I'm actually convinced that not just the bacon or the pancake is going to satisfy me, but like everything. I'm just walking around with like a constant hunger and a distractibility that fasting begins to tear open. And all of a sudden I start to go, oh God, maybe you could satisfy me in places that I I never even knew to ask. And so I want to I want to challenge you. You don't have to do what I'm doing in the month of February. And I don't say that to say, look... I say that to say, look at how weak I am. I need to be torn open. And I'm inviting you to do the same. Like, don't we want to leave our half-hearted lives behind? Don't we want to do it now? And the truth is, our hearts have been worked over in a way that they need to be ripped open to receive the refreshing rains from heaven. Would you consider leaning in and doing that with us? This is how the people of God do it. And he says, everybody, Everybody, he's going, get the nursing infants, get the elders, get the old people, the young people, get the freshly married people. Let's all lean in together because there's something powerful when you realize I'm not doing this alone. Like you're leaning in with me. We as a community are hungering for God. And he finishes by saying, he says, well, well, I'm ahead of myself. Let me pause. I must just let the cat out of the bag because I'm too happy. 
I'll finish here. Okay. Let me summarize so far. What are we talking about leaving our half-hearted life behind? When do we do it now? How do we do it? We tear our hearts in fasting. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Let me read to you verses 14, 13b and 14. Uh, it says this. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Why would we do this? Not to be miserable, hungry people that are unsatisfied. That's not why we say, let's spend some time fasting and praying. We're not doing it to be really religious and really pious and to say, look at me and look. We're not doing it for any of these. We're doing it because he's that good. We're doing the grounds clause. He says, for, for, he is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. Abounding means he's filled up to spilling out. Like what's just spilling out of God that he can't contain is the fact that he is so loving and merciful. He loves to relent from disaster. He wants to pour out good things on you. But when our heart is caked over, it can't receive it. And so what he's saying is the reason why you would do this, the reason why you would tear your hearts is because look at me. I would fill you up. I would pour out steadfast love that would saturate your soul and would satisfy you in fresh and full ways. Look at me. He says, don't don't play games with a half heart. I don't have a half heart. My heart is overflowing with love. I've got a whole heart with whole love for you and you're playing these dilly-dallying, half-hearted games with me. He's like, when's it gonna end? And then I love that he finishes with that question. It's actually the same question that we got in Jonah chapter three where the, the Ninevites go, who knows? Who knows? It's such a generative question. It like creates things. In essence, what the people of God are going is, can you imagine if we all got together and with our whole hearts, we longed for God? And then it's this question. He's like, who knows what would happen? And I think he's asking like generally, we don't know. It's interesting, he says, who knows, maybe God would relent right after saying his character is that he relents. In essence, he's saying, who knows, maybe God's actually God. Maybe God is gonna show up in your midst and delight you with revival. Revival that starts in your own hearts as it sets a blaze for God in a way that spills out into your city. But will you ever know if you just stay half-hearted and play games with him? And the answer that this text is begging us to come to is no, we won't. Who knows? Who knows? It seems that the only way we could know is to lean in. Say like, I'm all in. I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna long for God together with the community. Not with like a prescribed end, but a sense of, God, we just want you to show up because we think that if you did, we'd have a story to tell. We'd have joy overflowing in our hearts. Who knows? I love the question. Friends, would you return to God with a whole heart? Who knows? Who knows what he might do? There's a few things he tells us he will do. When we return, we are restored by the presence of God. And briefly, in our remaining 10 minutes, I just wanna tell you the four things that show up in this text of how he restores us. 
just want to explore them briefly. What does it mean that he restores his people? The first is this, he will satisfy you. He will satisfy you. One of my favorite things to do is, is working with small groups of men in discipleship circles, helping them begin to experience their rootedness and their joy in Jesus and watching that they've been chasing things. They've been carrying things around on their shoulder that are whispering in their ears. But as they, they pause and begin to prioritize God, they, they begin to realize that God can and will satisfy them in the places that they've been longing for in ways that they didn't think possible. It's one of my favorite places to exist is experiencing it and sharing it and watching it happen in the hearts and the lives of others. The way that God says it will show up in this text is this. He says that God is going to satisfy with good things. Look in verse 18 and 19. It says, then, right there, then, where you're fasting and weeping all together, where you're calling out for me, where you're finally opening your hearts up to me, then the Lord will become jealous for the land and have pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil. You will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Uh, in, in C.S. Lewis's work, there's this ghost with the, the lizard on his shoulder and he finally trusts God enough and he says, okay, kill it. And God reaches out and he grabs it and breaks the back of the lizard and throws it to the ground. The man falls down and then in the most unexpected of things, he starts to come into living color. He stands up dense and whole and real. But then he turns and he sees that something's happening to the lizard as well. It's coming into life itself and it's no longer a little red lizard that's been whispering. It is now a brilliant white stallion. <sighs> It shakes its mane and he climbs onto its back and goes, ha, ah, and goes riding off into the mountains of God. Because the weak and puny affections that rob you of your freedom and your fullness and the color of life, when they are killed in the hands of God, they become what they were always intended to be. He said, I will deliver satisfaction to your soul. I will give you the grain and the wine and the longings of your soul that you thought this thing was appealing to. You will finally see. And it won't rob you. It will serve you. You will climb upon its back and it will follow your direction. He's saying, this is what I will do. If you will return to me with your whole heart, I will satisfy you. Finally, you will be satisfied. And once you're satisfied, I will fight your enemies. <laughs> you see, part of the reality is that we've been, we've been worked over with distraction and hardship and we're thronged with enemies of our soul. These people had real enemies that they were worried about and, and we do too. They're, they're enemies like the temptation that you carry around like your bitterness from the way that you were mistreated in that relationship that you've carried around, you've got a seething anger that you feel like it's your right to hang on to. It is an enemy to your joy thronging your soul moment to moment. We walk around with these enemies that we think, this is just the way life is going to be. I'm gonna be angry and lonely and sad and lustful for the rest of my life. And God shows up and he begins to satisfy your soul and then he says, and by the way, I'll fight your enemies for you. Look at the way that he says it in verse 20. 
I will remove the northerner far from you. I will drive him into a parched and a desolate land. His vanguard or the face or the head into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. He says from head to toe, I'm gonna destroy him. I'm gonna drown him. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. When Jesus begins to satisfy your soul, he begins to drown the enemies of your soul. You're so filled up with him that the things that you feel like have owned you all of a sudden are gurgling under the water. They no longer have voice because he is fighting for you. He will set you free. The third, the third reality of being restored by him, it's not just that he will satisfy and fight your enemies as you hunger for him with a whole heart, but he will bring a miraculous joy. The sort of joy that works backwards. I summited my first mountain when I was 17 years old in Colorado with a group of friends. We woke up before the sun came up and we decided to climb this 14er. And as we were working our way up, it was one of those where you start scrambling over rocks, you cut open knees, you've got bruises. There's moments where your lungs are on fire and the thin mountain air and your muscles are on fire. And we were doing it before the sun rose. It was dark and cold. There were many times where we were going, what were we thinking? <laughs> and then we got to the top. And we got to watch the sun come up. And I remember at 17 going, ah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those where you're like, yeah, this was worth it. And vistas like this change things. They changed things in this way that by the end of the day when we were retelling the story, when we were remembering it, it was actually the bruises and the cuts made the vista all the better. We were like, that was awesome. Do you remember when your lungs were on fire and we were wondering if it was worth it? But then when we saw it, do you remember what we saw this morning? Have you ever experienced anything like that? Listen, that is coming in a cosmic and a complete way a cosmic and a complete way, a miraculous joy that works backwards. Hear the way he says it in the text. Verse 21 and following, he says, Fear not, O land, be glad, rejoice, the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, rejoice. So he's saying, joy, joy. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured out abundant rain, the early and the latter rain. The fleshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats will overflow. And then he says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust had eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. What he's saying is, he's not denying this fact. What he's saying is, it's been really hard for you. For years. The joy I'm bringing works backwards. The vista is so glorious. Like where I am taking you, you will look back and you will say, ah, my scars make it sweeter. It's so good and so glorious. The joy is so miraculous. It will work back even to your heartaches. You see, what does it mean that he's gonna restore you He's gonna satisfy you and fight for you and bring you miraculous joy that doesn't just start in the moment and work forward. It starts in the moment and it swallows your history. And then lastly, he says, there will be no more shame. I'm gonna swallow your shame. Hear it in the text as we finish. It says this 
in verse 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. I would double, line, double underline never again if you're that sort of person in your Bible. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. The word for shame in the Hebrew literally means pale. It's that idea of you've been exposed and embarrassed. It's like the glory of God just showed up in your living room and you got found out and you're pale of face going, oh no. Like here I am, I've been listening to the voice in my ear. I've been, I've been half-hearted, I've been foolish. Such embarrassment and exposure and shame and what he's saying is I'll take care of that too like when you return to me with a whole heart I will satisfy you I will fight for you I will bring you miraculous joy and I will swallow your shame it will never touch you again we like that man in the great divorce will become ruddy and alive like living in the world because we finally found what it's really about. Friends, when you see Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, when you welcome him in his beauty and his glory, recognizing that he has come to fight for you, to be torn open for you, there's this beautiful reality that his love begins to melt and change us in such a way that we can go, I finally know satisfaction. I finally know what it is to be safe. He has fought my enemies and he buried them in his grave. He has brought joy that nothing can touch. Ah, and I will never be ashamed again. Return to him with your whole heart and he will restore you. Let me pray for us. Just before I pray, would you pray? And would you admit to God the ways that you've been half-hearted? Name it to him. The ways that you love other things, the ways that your affection for him is small and weak. Would you just admit it? Rend the heavens and come down. Rend the heavens and come down, God. Cause salvation to spring up from the ground. We want revival. We want whole hearts. We want to live alive. I pray that in the coming weeks, as we prepare our hearts and as we lean in to communally hungering for you, I pray that you would unearth something in us, that we would be a wholehearted, rich and alive people, vibrant with life coursing through our veins and that we would experience the great delight of being restored by you. For your glory, would you do it? Amen.